passage of Scripture, which we will read this morning in connection with Lord's Day 6, is Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, we read the 18 verses of the chapter. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles, and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one, in a certain place, testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me, Forasmuch then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Here we end our reading of the Holy Scriptures. We turn to Lord's Day 6. Consider together the four questions and answers of Lord's Day 6. Question 16 asks, Why must he be very man and also perfectly righteous? Because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which hath sinned should likewise make satisfaction for sin, and one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. Why must he in one person be also very God? That he might, by the power of his Godhead, sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath, and might obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life. Who then is that mediator who is in one person both very God and a real righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Whence knowest thou this? From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise, and afterwards published by the patriarchs and prophets, and represented by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law, and lastly, has fulfilled it by his only begotten Son. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the focus, the sharp focus of Lord's Day 6 is upon the He that is mentioned in question 16. The third word of the question, He. We are going to focus on that He this morning. And this He, this one whom the Lord's Day speaks about is the mediator that Lord's Day 5 taught us we must seek after. The last question and answer of Lord's Day 5 was this, what sort of mediator and deliverer then must we seek for? And the answer to that question lays out the qualifications of that mediator. And now Lord's Day 6 is going to continue the development of that idea which began in Lord's Day 5 and is going to explain to us who that mediator is and what qualifications he must have in order to perform the work that belongs to his position, to his office as the mediator of the covenant, the mediator between God and man. Mediator is simply a go-between. The children in the congregation can remember the meaning of that word mediator that way. A mediator is a go-between. That is, a person who comes between two others who are at odds with each other on account of some wrongdoing. And that's the case for the human race. That's the case for us. We are at odds with God. We are at enmity with God by nature on account of our sin. Our sin has estranged us and separated us from God. And as the preceding Lord's days have instructed us, our sin makes us deserving of the extreme punishment of body and soul. Our sin deserves hell. And Lord's Day 5 has shown us that there is only one way of escape from that punishment which sin deserves. The satisfaction of God's justice. And God's justice can only be satisfied through the making of a full payment of atonement that satisfies every demand of God's law and bears the fullness of the just punishment that sin deserves. And Lord's Day 5 has shown us that not A single one of us can make that satisfaction ourselves, nor can there be found in the creation somewhere another creature who can do it for us. We need a mediator who is able to be our go-between. A mediator between God and men who stands between us and makes satisfaction for us in order to reconcile us, to make peace and bring us back to God's favor and fellowship. Lord's Day 6 sets before us wonderful, comforting word of the gospel, the good news that is at the heart of the Bible. That there is a mediator. There is a go-between for us. He doesn't rise from from below. That's impossible. No creature, no man, mere man can be this mediator. But there is a God-given mediator provided graciously for us who is fully qualified to save us from our sins. Our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to focus on Him this morning and focus on how He is qualified to make satisfaction for us and thus reconcile us to God. And how we may have that confidence and assurance A full, free, and unchangeable salvation through His perfect work.
Our theme is the God-given mediator. We're first going to look at his qualifications. Secondly, his identity. Thirdly, his revelation. How we come to know him. Let's start by setting before our minds the idea of qualifications. What do we mean in Christian theology when we speak about the qualifications of the mediator? That is the doctrine which is the subject of Lord's Day 6. The qualifications of the mediator of the covenant, the qualifications of our Savior. Qualifications refer to the fitness or the suitability of someone for a certain task or a position or an office. A few examples to help us get that idea before our minds clearly. Employers have certain qualifications that they look for in their employees. If an employer is hiring, he is looking for someone qualified for the job. And what does that mean? Well, he's looking for someone who has the know-how and the skill set, which enables him to do the job right, to do it well, and to do it in a timely and effective manner so that the business can be a competitive business in the business world and be successful. Employers want qualified employees. Employees that have a fitness and a suitability for the position and task that they are given. Qualifications are important. If you're going to submit to surgery, if you're going to let yourself be put under and lay on the operating table, you want a qualified surgeon. It's not enough to have someone who cares about you and is well-intentioned towards you. You want that. But above all things, you want a surgeon who knows what he's doing. You're not going to let the scalpel be put in just anyone's hands. No matter how much that person cares for you, you want a qualified surgeon that is someone who knows what they're doing has an in-depth understanding of the human body and the operation that must be performed. One who knows the procedure and has a reputation for skill and success in the operating room. You want a qualified surgeon. A surgeon who is fit and suitable for the task of surgery. So it is with the most exalted position. And the most important work that there is. Namely, the position of the mediator of God's covenant. The office of Savior. The work of saving poor lost sinners such as we are. If someone is going to hold that position of mediator. If someone is going to be the Savior of poor lost sinners such as you and me. If someone is going to perform that most important and most difficult of works, namely the redemption of sinners and the reconciliation of those sinners to God, their full salvation, we must have a qualified mediator. One who is fit and suitable to that office and to that task. And now that's what Lord's Day 6 is getting into. Lord's Day 6 draws from the whole Bible... And sets before us three essential qualifications that our mediator and savior must possess if he is to complete and finish the work of saving God's people from their sins. There are three essential must-haves, must-haves to get this important job done. And that's what question and answer 16 and 17 set before us. They explain for us in very simple terms the fitness and suitability of the mediator. What he must be to save us from our sins. So let's now walk through those three essential qualifications. And as we do so, let this not be an exercise merely in abstract theology. This gets very close to the heart of the gospel. Because here we are looking at who our Lord and Savior is. 
and how He is able to save us from our sins, we're getting at the great wonder of the Gospel that God provides such a mediator as this. One that we could never produce of ourselves. One that could never rise from below. But one that could only come from above. One that could only be supplied for us by the astounding and marvelous grace of our Heavenly Father. The qualifications of the mediator is warm theology. Gospel theology. So we start with the first qualification, which we find in question 16. Why must he, our mediator, be very man and also perfectly righteous? Let's take the first part of the question. Why must he be very man? There is the first qualification. The mediator of God's covenant, our Savior, must be very man. And very means truly, really, fully. He must be a real man and fully human. This means that our mediator must possess our human nature. The very same human nature that we have received from our parents going up the human family tree all the way back to Adam and Eve. Our human nature simply refers to everything that belongs to being a human being. The human nature is our body and soul with all of its faculties, all of its powers, heart, mind, will, emotion, strength. The human nature. All of us are human beings, but we're different human beings because we are different people. We have different persons. Our person and its personality distinguishes us, but we are the same in this regard that we are all human beings. We share... This human nature that God created in Father Adam and which is received by all of his posterity. The human nature is something universal that we possess. We all have a human body and a human soul, a human mind, a human heart, human emotions, human strength, and all of the rest. And that's what unites us together as members of the same human race, organically connected. We all share this human nature. And so, for a person to be a human being, they must possess this human nature. And the teaching of the Catechism here is that our mediator, if he is to be qualified for that position and the task that belongs to that position, redemption, saving God's people from their sins, if he is to be qualified, fit, suitable for that work, he must be one of us. He must be fully human. He must be a real man. He cannot be something else. He cannot be an angel. He cannot be a partial human being, some hybrid creature. He must be fully human. One of us. Why? Why? That's the question the Catechism is setting before us. This is the qualification. Why is it a qualification? Well, answer 16, the first part, explains it for us. Because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which hath sinned should likewise make satisfaction for sin. Our mediator must be fully human because God is just. And God is holy. This harkens back to the instruction we already received in Lord's Day 5. God's justice demands that satisfaction be made for sin. That's the only way of escape. That's the only way to be delivered from the punishment sin deserves. For satisfaction to be made. Remember what satisfaction is. Satisfaction is meeting the demands of God's justice as revealed in His law. And satisfaction is made then through a full payment, atonement, Bearing the full punishment that sin deserves while also satisfying the righteous demands of God's law. But now God's justice requires that the one who makes satisfaction be a human being. And that makes sense. Mankind sinned. Therefore mankind must pay the penalty for sin. Man sinned. Man must make satisfaction. That is basic 
justice. And because God is uncompromising in his justice, he never acts contrary to his holiness. There is no way around this qualification. If we fallen sinners are to have a savior, that savior must be one of us. He must be fully human. Because human a human being must make atonement and satisfy for human sin. In the theological language of the Lord's day, the same human nature which hath sinned should likewise make satisfaction for that sin. This qualification is absolute. And so it disqualifies every other being besides the human being. The mediator must be fully human. Now, moving on in question and answer 16, question and answer 16 sets before us the second essential qualification of the mediator. That's the second part of the question. And also perfectly righteous. What this means is that our mediator, our savior, if he is going to be fit and suitable for the task of saving us, he must not only be fully man, but he must also be A morally perfect man. Perfectly righteous. Remember what righteousness is. Righteousness is harmony with God's standard of good and evil. Righteousness is being in alignment with that standard. Conforming to that standard. And that standard is God's law. God's law reveals His will. God's law teaches us what is right, what is in harmony, what agrees with God and His holy being. And God's law shows us all that is in disharmony with God, all that is against Him and therefore sinful and wrong. To be righteous is to be in alignment with God's law, with His standard, to be in conformity to the very holiness of God. Our mediator If he is to be suitable and fit for the task of saving us, he must be a perfectly righteous man. Completely in harmony with God's law. So what that means is that our mediator must be exactly like us with one exception. Our sinfulness. He must have the same human nature that sinned, but without any sin of his own. That means he must be entirely free from the taint, the pollution, and the guilt of original sin. He must have the human nature that we have received from Father Adam. He must have that nature, but he must have that nature without the hereditary disease that is our depravity, our inherited sinfulness. He must have our very nature, but without the least taint of original sin. And likewise, as our mediator lives as a human being, he must be entirely free of every actual sin. Actual sins are those sins that we commit day by day that arise out of the root of our sinful nature. Our mediator must have neither the root nor the fruit. Neither original sin nor any actual sin. That is, he must be entirely free throughout the entire course of his life. Free of every transgression of thought, word, deed, and even desire of the heart. He must be the perfect image bearer of God who reflects the glory of God in true knowledge of him, true righteousness, true holiness. He must be one who is perfectly consecrated to God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, who loves the Lord with all his heart and loves his neighbor as himself. To summarize it very simply, if our mediator is to be fit and suitable for the task at hand, Salvation. He has to be the perfect man. Why? Why is this such an absolute qualification? Answer 16 in the last part explains. One who is himself a sinner cannot make satisfaction for others. 
That's very simple, easy to understand, isn't it? Sinners can't save other sinners. If our mediator was a sinner like us, he himself would need the very redemption that he's supposed to bring to us. A sinner cannot make satisfaction for the sins of others. He needs satisfaction to be made for his sins. A sinner cannot perfectly fulfill the righteous demands of God's law because as a sinner he has already broken them and has made himself liable to suffer the very same punishment that the rest of us deserve. Sinners can't save other sinners. Sinners cannot deliver other sinners from the just penalty of their sin. And so our mediator must, must be sinless. And conversely, not only is it true that sinners cannot save other sinners, but only a perfectly righteous, a perfectly righteous mediator can save sinners because part of his work is to earn and obtain for us righteousness. We'll get to that in question and answer 17. If our Savior is to earn and obtain for us righteousness, he himself must be perfectly righteous. Teaching of the scriptures, particularly in in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, Jesus Christ, our mediator, is our righteousness. Our mediator must be perfect such that he himself can be our righteousness. And so this qualification is likewise absolute. He must be fully man. He must be perfectly righteous. Now in question and answer 17. We come to the third. Of these essential qualifications. Question 17. Why must he in one person. Be also very God. Notice first. That our mediator must be one person. He must be one person who possesses all of these qualifications. You cannot have two mediators, each of which possesses one or two of these qualifications, and then together they work to accomplish salvation. No, that won't work. We must have one mediator who possesses all of these qualifications. One person who is fully man, a perfectly righteous man, and now number three, fully God. Very God. Truly God in every respect. And what this means is that our mediator to be fit and suitable for the work of salvation, he must himself be divine. He must have the divine nature. He must possess all that belongs to being God. The divine nature is not a a divine body and soul. God is not made up of parts like we are. We human beings have body and soul. God's divine nature is the one indivisible divine essence. The divine being. And so what the catechism teaches us here is that our mediator must fully share and fully participate in the one divine essence. He must be God himself. He cannot be a mere creature. Nor is it enough for him merely to be a perfect human being such as Adam was before the fall. Not even a perfect human being can Perform the work of the mediator. Not even a perfect sinless man. That all by itself. Not even that. Meets the qualifications of the mediator. He must also. Be fully. God. When you put all of these qualifications together. You see what a wonder. The God given mediator is. And the utter impossibility of this mediator coming from below. How can we find in this creation or produce of ourselves a mediator who is fully man, perfectly righteous, and fully God? It's an impossibility. But the gospel reveals the wonder that God provides such a mediator. 
But now let's wrap up the first point by answering the question, why? Why must our mediator, who is fully man, perfectly righteous, why must he also be fully divine? Answer 17 explains this qualification to us, the reason for it. That he might, by the power of his Godhead, sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath. There's the first reason. And now a second reason. And might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Let's look at the first reason. That he might by the power of his God had sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath. The, the logic goes like this. First, as we've seen, the same human nature that sinned must make satisfaction. All right? That leads to the second step. Satisfaction can only be made by bearing the full penalty of the law against sin. And that full penalty is eternal death. But no human nature all by itself. Not even a perfectly upright human nature by itself has the power to bear that burden of God's wrath against sin. To bear that burden of the eternal death which is the just execution of the sentence of God's law. No human nature can bear that. Not even a perfect one. No mere human nature. That burden would crush it. And thus we see only divine power, power that is almighty, can bear that burden and bear it such that others are delivered out from under it. Only divine power can do that. And so our mediator, if he is to be qualified, if he is to be fit and suitable for the task of saving sinners from their sins, he must be both fully human and fully God. He must be fully human because the human nature needs to bear the wrath of God. Justice demands that. But he must be God because the human nature, even a perfectly upright human nature, would be crushed beneath that burden. And so the power of the mediator's Godhead is needed to sustain, to uphold the human nature in the bearing of the punishment of sin. And in that way, the mediator makes satisfaction. Think about it this way. Because man must pay for man's sin, that crushing burden of the eternal death sentence, that crushing burden of God's wrath against sin, must be placed upon the shoulders of the human nature. But even a perfect human nature would be crushed, would be bent over, would be consumed by that burden. And so the power of God, the power of divinity is necessary to bear up the human nature as that human nature bears the penalty for sin and makes satisfaction. And that's how these qualifications come together in our mediator and make him suitable and fit and qualified to perform the work of salvation. As a fully righteous man, our mediator can justly take the punishment our sins deserve. And as one who is fully God, he has the divine power by which he can sustain and uphold his own human nature as he bears that burden in our place. Here's the wonder of the incarnation. Here's the wonder of the the wisdom of God. God in His wisdom provides such a mediator for us. God in the flesh. The only one who can make satisfaction for us and deliver us from the burden of the punishment our sins deserve. And that brings us then to the second part of answer 17, which explains to us that our mediator must be able to obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. 
The mediator needs to be able to obtain from God. He must be able to obtain by meriting. And as we well know from the scriptures, it is a creaturely impossibility for us to merit. It is categorically impossible for the human being ever to merit something from God. The only one who can merit with God is God himself. And thus we need a mediator who is fully divine. His divinity makes him capable of meriting and obtaining for us righteousness and life. Moreover, it requires divine power to impart that righteousness and life to us after he has obtained it. And so we see that divine power is not only necessary for the negative side of the mediator's work, bearing the burden of the punishment our sins deserve, but it is equally necessary for the positive side of his work, meriting and imparting to us the blessings that he earns through his suffering and bearing of the punishment of our sins. Our mediator must be fully God. Now we come to the joyful revelation of the identity of our mediator. And the catechism has been building up to this here in question and answer 18. Having set before us the qualifications of our mediator and impressing upon us the utter impossibility of us ever producing this mediator of ourselves or finding him somewhere out in God's creation. We come to this question, who then? Who then is that mediator? Who is in one person both very God and a real righteous man? And there's earnestness in that question. Who is he? Can it be that there is such a one? Who is he? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Him alone. He is the one mediator between God and men. Provided by God graciously and mercifully for the salvation of his people. There is no other name given under heaven. Whereby we must be saved. Jesus Christ. Then the catechism quotes. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness, sanctification and redemption. That is, Jesus is our full salvation. There is nothing lacking in Him, in Him and in His work. All that we need to be saved is found. He is a complete Savior. That's His identity. That's the identity of our mediator, Jesus Christ. And now it's here that I want to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Because Hebrews chapter 2 is one chapter of the Bible which shows us that Jesus Christ alone possesses all three of these essential qualifications that we looked at in the first point of the sermon. This theology is not an intellectual construct that is divorced from the Bible, but this theology arises from the pages of the Holy Scripture itself. And so now, for the rest of the second point, what I want to do is go through Hebrews 2 and show how each of these three essential qualifications is attributed to Jesus Christ, either explicitly or implicitly. Hebrews 2 teaches, Jesus alone is the qualified mediator. So let's start with the first qualification which is the one that Hebrews 2 brings out the most vividly and explicitly. Namely, that our mediator must be fully human. Hebrews chapter 2, in several places, teaches Jesus is fully human. Let's start by looking at verses 6 through 9. Verses 6 through 9. Here, the writer to the Hebrews quotes from Psalm 8 and applies Psalm 8 to Jesus. And in the the writer's application of Psalm 8 to Jesus, he shows us in a striking way that Jesus is one of us. He meets that first qualification. So starting at verse 6, but one, and one there refers to the inspired psalmist David, 
But one in a certain place, Psalm 8, testified saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor. And didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Here the psalmist quoted by the writer to the Hebrews points out the position that God gave to humankind when God made Adam and Eve in the beginning. God made human beings a little lower than the angels, but set human beings at the pinnacle of his creation. He gave to the human race the office of prophet, priest, and king under God, and they were to rule over the creation in the name of God. God made man a little lower than the heavenly angels. But now, in verse 9, the writer to the Hebrews takes this passage from Psalm 8 and applies it to Jesus. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Psalm 8, those words of Psalm 8 are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus according to his person, is God the Son. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is far exalted above even the loftiest of the angels, for he is the creator himself. And yet the wonder, the wonder of the incarnation is this, that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. What that means is Jesus was made man. Just as God created man a little lower than the angels in the beginning, so Jesus came down from heaven and took upon himself our flesh and was made a little lower than the angels. He became one of us. And verse 9 tells us the reason, the purpose for him coming down and being made a little lower than the angels. For the suffering of death. To die in our place. To make atonement. To make satisfaction. To do the work of the God-given mediator. He's qualified. And he's done the work. He came down and took upon himself our human flesh. For the suffering of death in our place. He's qualified. Our Lord Jesus is one of us. Fully man. The same truth is emphasized In another passage here in the chapter, if you move on to Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise partook or took part of the same. That's one of the strongest verses in the New Testament, emphasizing the real and full humanity of Jesus Christ. It teaches us that the very same flesh and blood that we have, flesh and blood stands for the whole human nature, Jesus took part in the same. And again, the purpose for that is brought out. That through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He took part in our human nature so that he might die for us in that human nature and destroy the one who has the power of death and deliver us from our bondage so that he might do the work of the mediator. He's qualified. Finally, you look at the last couple verses of the chapter, or rather verses 16 and 17. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels. He didn't assume the nature of those lofty spiritual beings that God created, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. He took our flesh upon himself, and he took on himself what we call a central human nature. According to God's prophecy, God's promise, Jesus was born in the central line of the covenant. He is the seed of Abraham. 
Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. He was made like unto us. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Once again, he was made like unto us in order that he might be our mediator. So there's the first qualification. And Jesus possesses it. He's fully man. But now, the second qualification, Jesus is also perfectly righteous. A perfectly righteous man. This qualification is less explicit in Hebrews chapter 2, but it is here. It's here implicitly in verse 11. Verse 11 says, For both he that sanctifieth, that's Christ, he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. As we've already seen, if our Savior is to save us from our sins, he must be perfectly righteous. If our Savior is to sanctify us, that is, redeem sinners and make us holy again, that requires that he himself be perfectly righteous and perfectly holy. And so, the text here, when it speaks of Jesus sanctifying his people, that means the sanctifier is himself perfectly holy. He's qualified to be our mediator. He's qualified to save sinners. Because he himself is not a sinner. That's implied too in the language that's used to describe Jesus in verse 17, where he's described as a merciful and faithful high priest. What's implicit there is made explicit a few pages later in Hebrews 4 verse 15, which describes Jesus this way. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are Yet without sin. Our merciful, faithful high priest is without sin. He's qualified. Finally, Jesus is fully God. And Hebrews 2 verse 10 teaches us that. Hebrews 2 verse 10. For it became him, Jesus, for whom are all things. That is, for Jesus, all things exist. The purpose of all things is to glorify and honor Jesus. That means he's God. Because all things exist for the glory of the creator, the one only true and living God. When the text says all things are for him, it teaches that he is God. The next phrase as well. And by whom? Are all things. He's the creator. This Jesus. Is the word. By whom all things were made. The word. Made flesh. He's fully God. And thus he meets this essential qualification as well. And thus. Hebrews 2 verse 10. Ends with this beautiful expression. In bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. That's who Jesus is. And he's the only one who can be this. The captain of our salvation. The leader and the accomplisher of our salvation. The God-given mediator. Finally, this morning, our mediator is revealed in the Holy Gospel. That's the last question and answer. Whence knowest thou this? How do we know all this theology we've gone through this morning? How do we know this personally? The answer from the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise and afterwards published by the patriarchs and prophets and represented by the sacrifices and the other ceremonies of the law and lastly has fulfilled it by his only begotten Son. The gospel is the good news. The gospel is the good news that stands at the heart of the Bible, God's special revelation to his people. The gospel is the message of the Bible. It's God's word to us. 
God himself has given us this mediator and God himself reveals the mediator to us, tells us who he is, shows us his qualifications and works in our hearts by his spirit to bring forth lively faith by which we lay hold of this mediator and trust him for our salvation. That's the coming Lord's Day. Lord's Day 7 on saving faith. The gospel is the revelation of Christ. And that same gospel has been revealed throughout all history. It was first given to Adam and Eve in paradise after they fell. When God gave them the mother promise, promising the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. It was a gospel that he revealed to the patriarchs and prophets. And through whom he published to his people. It was a gospel he represented in the whole Old Testament system of worship. The sacrifices, the priesthood, all of it a picture book pointing to the coming Christ. It's the gospel that is given to us now in the New Testament, in this age of fulfillment, in its full form, in the Holy Scriptures. As the book of Hebrews begins in the first opening verses, God, who at sundry times in diverse manners spake in times past unto the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Believe. Believe in this Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. Behold him as he's revealed in the Bible. See him as fully suitable and fit to save you from your sins. Trust in him and rest in him. In him and in him alone. You find righteousness, everlasting salvation, life eternal. Amen. Faithful God, Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this word of instruction concerning the qualifications of our mediator. May this word, reminding us of familiar truths, impress upon our hearts the glory of our Savior. May we adore Him. May we thank Thee for Him. May we trust Him with all our hearts. Bless this word to our hearts, therefore, the strengthening of our faith and our life and godliness. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.